our last week in our series in Hebrews. Uh, when we come back in July, we'll be working through the book of Esther and then on into uh, Philippians. And uh, I'm, I'm going to finish today in Hebrews chapter 12. It's not because I have an aversion to the number 13. You know, the, some of those buildings that don't have a number 13. It's just this is where we're going to wrap up today. Uh, Hebrews is this book. We've said it over and over. It's, it's written to Jewish converts who've become followers of Jesus and, and times are difficult. And last week was a reminder to these converts to hold to faith in what Jesus would do rather than reverting to the old ways of practicing their Jewish faith. Uh, and, and last week was chapter 11, this, this hall of fame of the heroes of faith. And, and the writer is saying, hold to faith in Jesus. And this week in chapter 12, he begins by saying, now since, since we've talked about all those people that are watching us, the people that this great cloud of witnesses, this is how we live. And he begins to wrap up the, the message of the book. So I'll just read chapter 12 of Hebrews, verses 1 to 29. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you've forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. 
If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Now, the first three verses of this passage are often very, very well known. And I find in those three verses a great way to close out this whole series. It's what I would refer to as a three-part calling. There's three things in verse 1, 2, and 3 that, that the writer calls us to that actually, believe it or not, form kind of an outline for the whole chapter. The chapter echoes verse 1, 2, and 3. They're well-known verses. And today I want to look not only at what they mean, but, but how we actually live that out. What does it look like if we are to do this three-part calling? First one that we see in verse 1, throw off whatever hinders. Now that makes sense, right? If you're running a race, you have something that's weighing you down. First of all, I have to ask you from, look at my state of being, why are you running a race? But anyway, if you are running a race, if people like Dave and those crazy guys that like to run races, if you're running a race, you want to throw off anything that would hold you back, anything that would slow you down. It's a no-brainer. If I'm going to run a race, I want to do it the, the fastest possible way that I can. And if you skip down and look at verses 14 to 17, you can begin to see this throwing off everything that hinders is spelled out in that section, 14 to 17, where, where he calls us to make conscious choices. He says in verse 14, make every effort. Literally, that Greek word, make every effort, is persecute. <laughs> That's what it means. Go after it. Persecute. Work so hard to make every effort to do these specific things. When Paul says, I press on to finish the race for which Christ has called me heavenly, that press on word is the same thing. Make every effort. Effort to do what? To live at peace? As much as it depends on you, make every effort to live at peace with all men. To be holy. Now, we, all, we always think of holy as morally pure. Okay, that's what we think of the definition is. The word is, is actually consecrate. Hagiasmos is the Greek word, and it means to set apart. When they went to the temple, there were certain things that were only used in the worship of God. These were the holy things or the set apart things. So when we think morally pure, that's not necessarily what it means. Like those things are set apart to only be used for God. But what he's saying to you is be holy. Set yourself apart. Now that hopefully will lead to a moral purity in your life, right? But it's, it's being set apart for God. Make a choice to live at peace, make a choice to set your life apart for something different. Then he says, let no one miss the grace of God. Let no one, including yourself, miss the grace of God. Just think about that. Who do you withhold grace from? Who is it that you're not letting God forgive the way God has forgiven you? Some of you, I know you, you're withholding grace from yourself. You spend most of your time beating yourself up for your past mistakes. It says, let no one, yourself included, withhold the grace of God. That's a choice that we need to make. That's one of the things that can hinder us. And when we do that to ourselves or to others, it says we let this root of bitterness grow up. Now, I've got some images. You've seen roots do damage, right? Look at, you've seen roots do that, right? Roots, this root of bitterness can upset things if we let it grow. But there's, there's some greater damage. If you keep going, read. Look at that. 
Split that rock completely. What's the next one? Do you see the power of a root? Now, if the root of bitterness grows, it's going to split. What's next? I think there's two more. Look at that one. And one final one. Unbelievable, the power of a root. And Paul says, okay, don't withhold grace because when you do that, the roots of bitterness start growing and they break, they're, they're destructive. They break things apart. And this is a choice. When we're laying aside those things that hinder, we're, we're stopping holding on to bitterness. We're letting the grace of God come to other people just as it's come to us. In verse 16, he says, you know, make every effort not to be sexually immoral. Let no one be sexually immoral. And then he goes on to, to use this story of Jacob and Esau, which is an interesting little reference. You remember Esau came back and he was so hungry. He wanted stew and, and Jacob had made it stew. And Esau said, I'll give you my birthright if you'll just give me that stew. It's this picture of this desire that he had and he could not refrain from his desire long enough to hold on to what was really important which is exactly what sexual immorality is. It's, it's giving into a desire instead of holding on to what's actually important. See, one of the ways that we throw off these things that hinder us is we make conscious choices to do certain things and not to do others. How many of you have ever noticed that once you make one bad choice, sometimes it leads to more bad choices? Or once you make one good choice, sometimes it leads to other good choices, right? And I get that, that some of these things like, like bitterness, like immorality, those things, some of those are very, very powerful forces in our life. But one of the things we say at our church is there's, there's four commitments we call people to. We say, if you want to grow spiritually, we call people to enter into relationships with other believers. We call them to, to find a mission, to worship weekly with the body, and to begin learning what we do in adult Sunday school and in kids Sunday school, learning about the faith. These are four choices that you can consciously make that begin to shape the rest of your life, that enable you to, to set aside those things that hold on to you, that enable us to run. And that's the second aspect of this calling, to run with perseverance. Now, there's some times that the Bible says really hard things, but there's other times when I love what the Bible doesn't say, okay? What it doesn't say here is run with speed. And it doesn't say run with gracefulness. How many of you, when you look at your spiritual running along the pathway of your spiritual life, are thankful it doesn't say run with speed and gracefulness, right? Right? <laughs> Not many of us run the spiritual life with speed or gracefulness. It says run with perseverance. Don't stop. Don't stop doing that. And one of the key, key ways we can do this is what we see in verses 4 to 13. We have to reframe struggle and difficulty. One of the ways we run with perseverance is changing how we look at these hard times, these Jewish believers are reverting to their old practices because life has gotten difficult. And they see difficulty as a sign that what they're doing is not working. And the writer says you have to reframe those difficult ways to see it as a way God is using these events to actually develop you and grow you and do what's good for you, it says. How many of you have ever seen two people? I, I have, so I hope you have. Two people... Different people, they look at the same situation and they see it totally different ways. How many of you have a friend that it doesn't matter, they could win the lottery, and their first response would be, what am I ever going to do with all this money? <laughs> right? And you've got the other guy that wins the lottery, and he's like, ah, what, what? 
right? They look at the same exact event, but they frame it differently. The way they look at it shapes how they react. And what the writer's saying here is you have to begin to look at struggle and difficulty in your life. You have to reframe it and you have to begin to see it as discipline. Now, discipline is a loaded word in our society, is it not? And, and we conjure up this idea of a God who seems to enjoy making our life difficult from this passage. That's what a lot of people, they read that and they're like, what? Punish difficulty? But we need to reframe it again in the context of a relationship. He says, you know, how many, the, how many we, we've had fathers who disciplined as they thought best, but what we have now is a father who disciplines us always for our good. Now, I'm an imperfect father, right? Right? Yeah. yeah, thank you. I was expecting more of a response from that, especially from that corner up there. But anyway, but let me ask you this. How many of you parents love making the life of your child difficult? How many of you would say, oh, I, just, I like to see him squirm? Parents don't do that, do we? If we discipline, we do it slowly and because we we hate to see them suffer we hate to see life be hard for our kids but we do it for a greater good and they say we have to what he's saying is to these jewish converts you guys have had this difficulty but you've got to realize that god is doing something in this for your good and it's a painful process it's it's not a fast run it's not a graceful run it's this run of perseverance it, it's trusting in the faith that we looked at last week that God has a purpose here, that he will carry you through. I love those Facebook memes that says, this is how I think I look when I do something, and this is how I actually look. Here's the spiritual journey. What you think you look like is the top. That's me. That's how I think I run the race. But what I actually look like is that dog on the bottom that's just barely making it, right? And I think sometimes <laughs> this running with perseverance through these difficulties, you know, we, we think the spiritual life should look like that, that, that was a cheetah or a leopard? Cheetah. Cheetah. Great. Um, we think the spiritual life should look like that. That's us running with perseverance and grace and everything. And the spiritual life looks like the bottom a lot more. But I want you to notice something about that picture. Look at their eyes. Right? I mean, the, the dog looks like he's about to have a stroke. I'll give you that much. <laughs> But their eyes are focused forward, right? And that brings us to this third thing, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Lay aside the weight, the things that hinder you. Run with perseverance. Don't give up. Realize that this difficulty is a part of it. And fix your eyes on Jesus. It says the author and the perfecter of your faith. I love those words. The author is, is, is the originator, the person who started it. And the perfecter is the one who completes it. The Greek words are for the beginner, the writer, the starter, and the one who fulfills or perfects or completes. And that's why we can run with perseverance because he started the race for us on the cross and resurrection, and it promises that he will finish it. It's not that he started it and we got to run the best we can. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author of your faith and the perfecter of your faith. You see, what he's saying here is that what really motivates us to lay aside the things that hinder us, what really enables us to keep running with perseverance is when we have struggles and difficulty is, is seeing the bigger picture of Jesus. And that's the last part of this chapter. 
Jesus reminds us of this core truth that we need to know that he has done this. He started this person, this race in us, and he will carry it to the end. And so it only makes sense as he wraps up this chapter for Jewish people to go back to what I call a tale of two mountains in verses 18 to 24. He, he compares Mount Sinai, where they got the Ten Commandments, to what the prophets would call Mount Zion, this, this holy city of Jerusalem, this, this beautiful picture of what God has for his people. And he starts in, in verses 18 to 21, reflecting on Jewish history. Back when they came out of Egypt, they're wandering through the desert, they come to Mount Sinai, and it's back in Exodus 19, it says this. This is just before they were getting the law from God. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Think about that. Think about if something happened in hope so that every single person in hope was shaking. That's what it was like. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of this mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. They could touch the physical mountain, but they were told not to, right? Even Moses in our text, it says the greatest leader of Israel, right? This is the guy that they all look back to as like the great man of faith, Moses. And it says, even when Moses saw it, he said, I am trembling with fear. That's mountain number one. You see, the writer's saying there's these two mountains that they can run toward. The first is the old one of condemnation and fear. The very giving of the law, the very fact that they got the law brought condemnation because they realized they didn't keep the law. That's why they were so scared, because here's God who's holy and perfect, and we're not. It was so obvious from the whole setup of that first mountain that God was there and present, but not very accessible. He was one to be feared. And even though the law was given to them as a way to lead them to him, it would never be able to actually complete that. It's a powerful image. It's God intervening in human history on this mountain and giving the law, but it's doing it in a way that really just reinforced our fear and the condemnation for our sin. But there's another mountain in Scripture, one that's referred to because of what Jesus has done, Mount Zion, and that's verses 22 to 24. See, the old mountain was one of condemnation and fear, but the new one is one of forgiveness and welcome. The whole image is different. Look at verse 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men. Oops, there's that scary part again. You've come to God, the judge of all men. But what's the next thing it says? To the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Something has happened on this new mountain because of Jesus that has enabled the judge of all men to not just judge, but to make humanity perfect, to forgive. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's that echo. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. And and the end of that says, you've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you know what that story is from? Remember the very first part of the Bible where Cain kills Abel, right? 
Because Abel offered, offered a sacrifice that pleased God, and Cain did not, and Cain got mad. He killed Abel, and when, when God comes to him, what does he say to Cain? Cain says, I, am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. And God says, his blood cries out to me from the ground. Very deep idea in the Jewish mindset. And what, what the guy is saying is, you can go to that old mountain of condemnation and fear, but you can come to this one as well. The one where Jesus has made a way for you, where there's blood that's been shed for you that speaks a better word than the, con- than the condemning word of the blood of Abel. You see, this is Hebrews in a nutshell. We have this choice in the way that we view and the way that we approach God. We can try to do it on our own, on our own merits. But all that's going to do is lead us to this mountain where we fail, a mountain of condemnation and fear in the way we approach God. Or we can rest in what Jesus has done for us. Let the love and the forgiveness that comes from the cross actually sink down deep into our lives to fix our eyes on Jesus who brought us that kind of love. And to let that great love for us as we look at him, let that motivate us to keep running with perseverance the race marked out for us. Did you catch that phrase? You know what we're specialists at? We're specialists at making sure everybody else runs the race that's marked out for them. Because we'd much rather look at their race and critique them on their race than think about the race marked out for us. But what he's saying here is is fix your eyes on Jesus because that that will, will enable you to run the race with perseverance despite the difficulty and the hardship. That will motivate you to lay aside, to make those choices, to lay aside things that would hinder the relationship of a God who loves you. So how do we make sure we're running toward the right mountain? How do we how do we do that? The whole point of this book is to reflect on what we're building our lives on. These Jewish converts were reverting back to the old way. But we also need to think, what is our life built on? What are we trusting in? What are we actually letting penetrate? Or, or, or what, what is motivating us as we run the race that we run? What are we actually basing our lives on? You know, we may say, oh, I'm basing my life on the grace and forgiveness of God. Yes. But do you actually see that in your life? Are you actually letting the grace and forgiveness of God penetrate to your own brokenness to where you realize that he loves you despite what you've done and that he loves other people despite what they've done? Is that what you're basing your life on? Or are you hanging on to this old mountain of condemnation and fear and trying to measure yourself against everybody else and trying to be better than they are? How can we be sure that we're actually running in the right direction? The first thing, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Listen to the one speaking. Listen to the one speaking. Jesus is speaking to you and me, and he's reminding us that what he has done is enough. In that moment when you see your own brokenness and your shame for your sin, who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to your own condemning voice because you failed? Are you going to realize that the cross is enough for that? Now, I know you think, Jeff, you're just giving yourself a blank check to do whatever you want. This guilt and shame helps me change. Well, does it? I really think that the the counterintuitive nature of what Jesus does is his love, despite our sin, actually makes us want to run the race with perseverance. It actually makes us want to throw off those things because when we're loved at our worst, why would we want to stay that way? There's a deeper motivation for us to lay those things aside. 
See, he's calling us to receive the gift. He says, I'm the author of your faith. I'm the guy who started it in you. I'm the guy who's going to finish it. Can you just fix your eyes on me, run with perseverance, the race that I've marked out for you, and when you come up against those things that are holding you back, just let them aside. Let go of that root of bitterness. Make sure that people receive the grace of God. In the moment when you want to choose your own desires over what's better, fix your eyes on Jesus and realize what he's done for you. Let that become the motivator to let go of these other things. It will be a painful run at times. That's what he's saying to these guys. It's difficult. There's struggle. That's part of the process. Because verse 26 and 27 remind us that he will shake off what we don't throw off. Look at verse 26. At that time his voice shook the earth. This is this old mountain. But now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. Verse 27. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken that is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Remember back that verse from from Exodus 19, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. The Lord descended on it. The whole mountain trembled violently. In that old mountain, it was all shaking. And he's saying there's coming another shaking. It will come. And, and it's going to shake away those things that won't last. It, re- it indicates the removing of what can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken may remain. This is what we saw in verses 4 to 13. This process of stripping away things out of our life Difficulty that comes to help us let go of the things that are holding us back. God will shake loose what isn't solid. And that may not be fun. I'll just be blunt. (laughs) That can be a really difficult process in your life. And it can hurt. But we, we have to hold on to the fact that the guy who started it, the author, is also the completer. And part of that middle part is him shaking loose the things that aren't solid so that what we actually have in our life is something substantial. And that leaves us with verse 28. Since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. See, this shaking is a challenge. It's difficult. It's painful. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus, if we realize we're working our way through this race with perseverance that he started, that he's going to finish, and this shaking is helping us throw aside these things that, that, <coughs> excuse me, that are hindering us, then we can embrace what I call a posture of thankful worship. Last thing we'll look at, verse 29. <laughs> For our God is a consuming fire. It's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Let those sentences come together with you. Let us be thankful and worship God, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, when you play with those two sentences together, <laughs> let us be thankful. Oh, thank you, God, because you're a consuming fire. Do you see the, I, the... It feels a little weird. If we read the Bible and actually read it, instead of reading what we think we've heard a million times, those, those seem like two different things. How many of you are thankful when your house is on fire? How many are thankful when you're burned? We don't get thankful for that. So why, why is this posture of thankful worship, what does that mean? You see, the thing about the shaking, the thing about running to the second mountain and the, and the trembling and all that is that what is happening 
in this consuming fire is purification, not destruction. The fire burns away everything that would destroy us, and it renews and it makes us new, and that's our hope. So today, God is a consuming fire, but it's not this fire that destroys. It's a fire that strips away that stuff that hurts us that we can't even let go of ourselves. Sometimes we hold on to our sin so strong that God has to shake it, so we drop it, right? Sometimes we just, uh, I get in a fight with my dog over the toy sometimes, right? He wants me to throw it, but he also wants to hold it in his mouth the whole time. So I pick him up, and sometimes when he was little, you could actually swing him around by that, and I know all you PETA people are saying, what are you doing? But there are times that I had to actually, and eventually he lets go. Well, that's what, that's the shaking for us. Sometimes we hold on to things so tight that would kill us that God lets us shake because it's not what we need. He says, set aside those things that hinder you. Run your race with perseverance. The only thing that's going to help you do that is to really focus on Jesus, who's the one who started it, who's the one who finished it, who's the one that's loving you all the way through it. And realize that when the world shakes all around you, that God will use that shaking to shake away everything that's not the best for you. And then you can start to thankfully worship this God who welcomes you to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God, to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You'll realize that you've come to God, the judge of all men, but that you can come to him Because there's the spirits of the righteous made perfect because of his grace. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkle blood that speaks a way better word than the blood of Abel, that all that blood of Abel could say was you're condemned. The blood of Jesus says you're forgiven, you're welcomed, you're brought into the family. I know you're broken, I know you've messed up, but I knew that when I started, and I'm still going to finish, he says. And if you can, by faith and trust, hold on to that truth. If you can fix your eyes on who Jesus is and just run. And when the shaking comes, allow it to help you throw those things aside. If you can hold on to the truth that the one who started it will finish it, your life will never be the same again. Let's pray. God, we, we are all at different places. Some of us are just fine looking at you and fixing our eyes on you gives great joy at the moment. And others of us feel like our whole world is collapsing around us. And I just ask that we would be given a gift of faith to trust that what the shaking, as you say in this passage, is for our good. That we could fix our eyes on you, that we could run forward, just just keep moving, following you. And that as we see things we need to let go of, that we could just let you pry our hands open and let those things go. Father, we want to run to this mountain of welcome and forgiveness. We want to invite others to come along with us. If we are holding, withholding the grace of God from anybody, if we're letting that root of bitterness grow and destroy things, in this moment right now, we just want to let it go. We want to let the forgiveness that you've given us flow out of us into other people. I pray that this would be a church that represents that mountain, these, these angels in joyful assembly, these, these souls of the righteous made perfect by the grace of God so that when people come here, they see you, the author, perfecter of our faith, the one who will not fail in your project for us. Help us to trust and to live in light of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Gospel. 
right? The gospel of the kingdom, the gospels, the story of Jesus means good news. Good news. And so many times we come to Jesus and we feel like we're overwhelmed by our sin. Yes, but that's the gospel is the good news is that Christ does not count our sins against us. He, he, he took them on himself and he makes, he makes payment for that so that we can be invited to this new mountain of hope, forgiveness, welcome. That's good news. And I think sometimes in our life, we just need to hear that good news that God loves me despite the fact that I'm a real loser sometimes. <laughs> right? That's the good news of the gospel. Philippians 1, I'll just leave you with this. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, the author of your faith, will carry it on to completion, the perfecter of your faith, until the day of Christ Jesus. Go in that hope of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Amen.